On our show today, the chef is more important than the recipe. From the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, hi everybody, and welcome back to the In Social Work podcast. I'm Peter Sabota. We've known for a long time that the most important factor in successful psychotherapy outcomes is the person who delivers the treatment. But who are these people? What do they do? And how do they do it? Are they born this way? Today on In Social Work, I'll speak with Dr. Teresa Moyers, practitioner, researcher, author, and leading scholar in the motivational interviewing approach about what effective psychotherapists, not psychotherapies, by the way, bring to the table and make them so effective in successful treatment outcomes. Want to learn more about how to do effective therapy? We have an evidence-based and practical discussion for you. Dr. Moyers will talk with us about her work researching, articulating, and disseminating the skills of effective psychotherapists. We'll cover counselor effects on outcomes, bridging the research to practice, and we'll wrap up with how to build and transform treatment delivery systems that reflect and support what the evidence says about what promotes successful client outcomes. Dr. Moyers will outline the most important characteristics, qualities, and skills of therapists that promote change and growth routinely in clients. She'll talk about why and how these skills help clients, how practitioners can learn to implement these skills, the importance of relationship in therapy, and what are the empirically supported ways to train therapists in these skills. Teresa Moyers, PhD, is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of New Mexico. She has published extensively in peer-reviewed journals and is a prolific motivational interviewing scholar and trainer. I also learned that Dr. Moyers trains and participates with her dogs in dog agility competitions. It's still an open question if the trainer is more important than the dog. Hi, Terry. Welcome to In Social Work. Hey, hello, Peter, and thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, no, no. Thanks for joining us. Why you would choose to ruin a perfectly good sabbatical is beyond me, but thank you for doing it anyway. I'm pleased to be here. So we've got a lot to talk about. And what I always ask people to get going is that these stories are usually kind of interesting. So I'm putting a little pressure on you, uh, maybe. But I'm always curious about how people found their way to the work. So that's where I'd like to start, if that's okay with you. I'm curious, how did you find your way, you know, briefly, Mm -hmm. sort of briefly, to clinical psychology, and then especially the focus on the work that you do and have been doing now for, you know, quite some time. So that's where I'd like to start. Could you give us the origin story here? Mm -hmm. I'll try. After a turbulent time in my early adulthood, I decided to go to college. And I so I went as a slightly older student to college and I took a psychology 101 class, fell in love with it, absolutely fell in love with it, never looked back, went all the way through psychology, graduate program, everything without stopping and considered myself the luckiest person on earth because I got to I was actually, you know, that was my job was to study and learn. And I loved that part of it. And I was lucky enough in graduate school to encounter very good mentors and teachers in the field of psychotherapy, Hmm. one of whom was Dr. William Miller, and the other was uh, Dr. John Gluck, Hmm. two people who really put a lot into me, turning me into a therapist. And uh, when I graduated, I took a job at the Veterans Hospital, Administration Hospital here in Albuquerque, And I worked there 10 years as a full-time clinician, 10 years. And that's where I really became a therapist, right? Mm. Like teach you in graduate school, but then you go and you actually work with clients and that's when you become a therapist. Yeah. The VA is a proving ground. Oh my goodness. What an, what a a hell of a great opportunity that was for me to learn. Mm -hmm. And the whole, the whole time I was there, I was sort of a frustrated researcher because I'd been trained in graduate school to do research and specifically outcome research regarding addictions. And that was my specialty. And I just couldn't get a research program off the ground. And there were lots of reasons for that. But finally, while I was recruited actually to do uh, some research trials away from the VA and 
I had left the VA for a soft money job and then transitioned into grants of my own and a tenure line. And so I'm a unicorn. I kind of went the opposite way. I was a full-time clinician and then I transitioned into sort of a tenure line as a faculty member at the mm-hmm. university. Mm-hmm. And the really cool thing about that is if I had tried to get into academia and into a research program when I had first graduated, I think I would have been a failure. It was, it's kind of a good thing that I was delayed. Oh, and yeah. Why that is, is because while I was working that 10 years, I found what I was truly interested in, which is what is it that makes therapists effective? And so yeah. when I finally did transition into a research career, I was like, this is what I really want to know about. What is it that makes a good therapist good? And that question has stayed with me the entire time I've had a research career. Well, we won't have to talk about that very long because, of course, we both know you're just born that way. And that's all that that's all you need to do. I know we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry I interrupted you there. Was there was there more you wanted to tell us? That's plenty. Okay. Enough about me. Well, you know, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but I, I do think that this idea where you go out into the real world, you know, before you go into academia is probably a helpful thing. In, it was in profoundly most. helpful yeah. yeah, in my own career. So today, what we wanted to talk with you um, mostly about is your work in researching and articulating and disseminating the skills of effective psychotherapists. So I also want to talk with you later on, because I know you have some thoughts about building and even transforming treatment systems that reflect all the things that you've been studying and learning about in your career. To start us off, I noticed that you titled your book with William Miller, Effective psychotherapists, not effective psychotherapies. And Mm -hmm. I have a hunch that there's an important distinction there for you. Well, sure, because I mean, there is a very vibrant and active research program in the United States to identify what are effective psychotherapies. And, you know, that is the empirically supported treatments initiative and movement perspective in which I'm very much I'm very much in favor of. Right. I'm very much in favor of investigating and verifying science based treatments and the technology. Right. The the particular mechanisms within those treatments that make them effective. And I also think that we ought to pay at least equal attention to therapist characteristics and behaviors and approaches that are data-based. And right now that seems to me very one-sided. And I understand why that is, because it's a whole lot easier to investigate psychotherapies than it is to invest psychotherapists. But I think we're, we're lopsided in the way we're approaching things now. And so this book is specifically to address that kind of lopsidedness and focus on what is the science behind effective psychotherapists? What is the yeah. science behind that? And that's what that book is about. Yeah, I like the idea of, you know, science and art, not science or art. And you've combined them. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why we want to talk with you. But what, wait a minute, Terry. I mean, if we study effective psychotherapies, all we have to do is manualize them and, and pretty much anybody can just trot that Wouldn't stuff out. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't <laughs> that be nice? And in fact, you know, there are decades of research in which we try to uh, do that and pretty much eliminate therapists as a variable in offering treatments, right? And we do all kinds of things to sanitize therapist effects out of RCTs that investigate therapies. And here's, here's the story. We can't do it. No matter how hard we try, no matter if we standardize the treatment manual, if we supervise the therapist, no matter how careful we are, there are still therapist effects. And those therapist effects, and by that I mean, if we analyze our data, instead of paying attention to what treatment the client received 
and instead focus on just what therapist did they get, we usually see bigger effects than we do for treatments. Treatments often account for two or three percent of the variance in outcomes. And Mm -hmm. therapists pretty typically account for somewhere between seven and 11 percent of the treatment outcome. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that we we can't get rid of therapists as a variable, even if we wanted to, which we which we shouldn't want to. So we should let our data tell us, okay, we've got these therapist effects. There are huge differences in how therapists are successful with their clients. Hey, that's kind of interesting. Shouldn't we look into that a little bit more, right? Yeah, I would I would think that's very interesting. Yeah. I want to be careful here that I don't do all the talking, but you just hit a light bulb for me. Before I was in academia, I was a practitioner for 16 years. And I I worked in a chemical dependency outpatient clinic for a while as a clinical supervisor. So I supervised, I don't know, 10 or 11, you know, direct line outpatient clinicians, mostly social workers. And I'm not even sure what they're called here in New York State. Again, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Credentialed alcoholism counselors, I think what Mm -hmm. they were called back then. Here's what I I think. Well, maybe you just said this, but I'll ask you to elaborate. All 10 of these people had the same supervisor. We weren't in private practice, so we were all espousing a treatment philosophy that was aligned with the clinic. Mm. We went to all of the same in-service trainings. We went to the same case conferences together to talk about our cases. So there was a fair amount of, if you would want to say, standardization, if you will, Mm. of, of what we were doing. Yet an amazing thing happened that I watched happen over and over in a public outpatient clinic. People don't just say, hey, I want to meet with Terry. They come in and whoever's available on the waiting list is, you know, that's who they see. So we had all these similarities, all of these controls, if you will. But time after time, the same thing happened. People who walked into our clinic, said hello, fill out the forms, and then disappeared into a room, for example, with with Terry Moyers for 60 minutes, came out 60 minutes later, smiling, chatting with Terry, said goodbye to our receptionist, double-checked their next appointment, and actually came back the next week. And... Almost everybody at the same clinic who randomly got assigned to, say, Peter Sabota disappeared into a room for 60 minutes. And 60 minutes later, the door opened quickly and slammed loudly and shook the whole place. The person stormed out of the room, slammed the door, and we could hear them going down the stairs an entire flight, and we never saw them again. Yeah. And I would watch that over and over, Terry. Why why do you suppose that happened? What would be a likely explanation for so that? First of all, I think that the data on treatment of substance use clients really backs you up, which is that the modal number of sessions completed by people seeking substance use treatment is guess what? One. 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 That means they go to one session and they don't return. There's your clinical observation, which is actually supported by data. And what I would say is we're doing things in those sessions. So (laughs) some of it is therapist effects, right? Like some of it is I'm just better than you are, Peter, right? And people will stick with me because I'm better somehow. Mm -hmm. But part of it is, and probably a more important part, is what we're asking those therapists to do. Because we're not prioritizing the engagement of the client and the motivation of the client in that probably one session that we're going to have with them. We don't prioritize change at all. What we Mm -hmm. prioritize is fact gathering and assessment. And often what you see is that the first, I mean, you're lucky if it's only the first session that you have to do fact gathering. Usually sometimes it's two or three. Yeah. Where it's yeah. devoted to what I call the million dollar workup, right? So we do this mm-hmm. fabulous, really important assessment for the client. And by the time we've completed our assessment and we have some idea of what we might do with them, we never see them again. 
So it becomes like this revolving door of the million dollar workup and no follow through. So that's a big part of what I think causes people to have one session and leave. And the other is sort of the ubiquitousness of confrontation in the field of substance use treatment. Yeah. You don't necessarily see in other kinds of problems, right? Like you don't see that in the treatment of depression or anxiety problems or things like that. But true. Yeah. So that could be something that's, you know, sort of specific to substance use. Yeah. So the plan here is to talk about therapist or counselor effects and especially on outcomes. And, you know, I know a large part of the book is really kind of taking through, I can't recall off the top of my head now if they're called principles. I I remember there are eight of them. Could you maybe just walk us through the high points of what you have learned about counselor effects and what are the desirable qualities or traits? Sure. So the book is organized in three main parts. The first part is us convincing you as the reader that therapists really pack a wallop and that they're (laughs) worth looking into. So we kind of review the literature on therapist effects and, you know, point people in the direction of saying, hey, therapists are having an impact, right? And here's all the research that tells us that therapists are having an impact. And then the second part of the book is, okay, well, if therapists are having an impact, what could it be? And yeah, we, what's the mechanism? Yeah, We look at all the things that turn out not to really matter. And those are things like the therapist's age and their sexual orientation, their gender identity, what field they've been educated in. Like, are they a social worker or a psychologist or something like that? You would think now that to me, that kind of hurts, right? Like you would <laughs> think that that would make a difference, but it doesn't. Uh-huh. And then even if you look at things, the, the thing that really hurts is experience, right? Yeah. Therapists who are experienced mm-hmm. are not better with client outcomes than therapists who are just beginning. And that's really sad, right? Imagine if we had surgeons that had that kind of, of pattern, we wouldn't <laughs> like it at all, right? And, and surgeons, it's called the surgeon volume effect. Surgeons get better when they do a particular procedure. And so if you want to have, for example, your knees replaced, what you want to do is you want to find the surgeon that does the most knees wherever you happen to live. Mm-hmm. But therapists do not show the same effect of getting better as they get more experienced. Mm-hmm. So we go through these factors and talk about, OK, well, we wish it was this, but it's not. You know, we yeah. pretend like it's this, but it's not. We pretend like it's your credentials that make all the difference but it really isn't. So what is it? And then we review in the literature, well, these are the, these are the characteristics of therapists that really have some support in the data. And there are factors like empathy, like being able to practice empathy. And let me just back up a minute and say, we identify these characteristics and then we used a model in which we talk about each of these characteristics having an internal component as well as an external behavior. So there's an Mm. internal experience that the therapist is having for each of these characteristics, as well as an external skill or behavior. And an example for empathy is the internal experience is curiosity. Mm -hmm. There are some people who are naturally sort of more curious about what's happening inside of other people, right? And some are less curious about that. So if you have more curiosity about what is happening inside of other people, why they're doing the things they are doing, what their experiences must be like, empathy is probably easier for you. And the external behavior that's associated with empathy, we specify as reflective listening, even though, of course, that's not the only characteristic that you or behavior that you have associated with empathy. Mm -hmm. So for each of the characteristics that we talk about, We discuss the internal component and the external component. And we talk about things like empathy, acceptance, being able to give feedback, being able to provide direction, Mm -hmm. being able to evoke from the client what their own strengths and contributions should be to the change process. And then one of the most surprising ones, for me anyway, was genuineness. 
Yeah, I was hoping you were going to get to. Yeah, go on, because I I do want to talk about this a little bit. Yeah. So genuineness has the least support data behind it than any of the other characteristics that we discussed. And and it has a a effect size somewhere between 0.3 and 0.45, pretty small. Right. Mm -hmm. And we thought about leaving it out because it's kind of not terribly well-defined, unlike other characteristics are. It's kind of a, I know it when I see it kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So we thought really hard about leaving it out, but really we were compelled to leave it in because we asked ourselves this question, what good is empathy if the client doesn't perceive it to be genuine? What good is acceptance? What good is feedback? What good is trying to evoke the client's own strengths and contributions if you're perceived as being false or playing a role or not, not really wanting to do those things? So or parroting something you heard at a training or in a book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was so compelling to us that we decided, okay, we're going to leave genuineness in and, you know, talk about the limits of the data that we have for it but also describe it as something we think is really critical and needs needs a lot more research behind it. Yeah. I, and again, thank you for talking about that. And I'm impressed that you were actually even able to operationalize genuineness to the degree that you did, because the reason I'm so curious about this is that beginning when I was a practitioner, but since I've been working with students now for 22 or so years, I began to ask people who had been to therapy or people who I met in therapy environments and who were successful. Mm -hmm. And I did my, you know, this is not even remotely scientific, but I would say, like, why do you think you were successful? Like, what happened? What worked? What do you attribute your success, you know, beyond your own efforts, of course? And it was really interesting. They didn't even know what discipline their therapist was half the of time. Of course. They, they don't care. They didn't say how experienced they were. They didn't say, you know, if they had, you know, an MD, PhD, MSW. None, they didn't even know it, let alone even want to quantify it. But they said things like, I was successful, I'm pretty sure, because I genuinely thought my therapist actually really cared about me, Mm -hmm. that actually the things I told them seemed to affect them. Mm -hmm. And I really got the sense, and this is the word that kept coming up. This is why I asked you and got so excited when you talked about genuineness, is that many of them use this word. My counselors seem to genuinely care about what happened to me. Mm -hmm. I felt it. Mm -hmm. I knew they didn't always agree with me, but they always accepted my point of view and let me try it. Mm -hmm. And it was all those intangibles, so-called intangibles, Mm -hmm. that seemed to matter most to clients. Yeah. That's what they found. So thanks for letting me tell that story. but. It's exactly what I thought of when you were talking. No kidding. And if you would ask patients with medical doctors, they would say the same thing. You know, probably it's the same thing with, I don't know, lots of people that we interact with, dentists and other people as well. And the fact that those are intangible things, what that means is we haven't done our homework yet, right? We haven't attached data to those phenomena that allow us to be able to measure it and to be able to evaluate it, perhaps even manipulate it in a clinical trial, right? In a way that we we can have more confidence in it instead of just being sort of like, wow, this is something I observed and I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. We can do with characteristics of therapists the same thing that we do with treatment technologies which is to manipulate them experimentally to see whether or not they impact outcomes. Yeah. And that's wonderful because there's, there's an ability to learn there, right? Mm -hmm. You're not like I was joking before you're, you're either born this way or not. Well, no, 
Yeah. Actually, that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. Let's just assume that people are born this way or not. Can people, in your opinion, learn something like empathy? Oh, heck yeah. So I think, well, okay. So (laughs) that, and this actually kind of circles around to the third part of the book. Remember, I told you there were three parts of the book. So the first part's about, you know, therapists matter. The second part is here are the things that the data support about therapists mattering. And then the, the third part of the book is, and here's what you can do to get better at those things, right? And we talk about how you can get better just if you're practicing with yourself or how you can get better if you're practicing with other people or how you can get better if you're in a system that will respond and allow you to make some changes in it, things like that. So how a person gets better at something like empathy could be at an individual level where they start paying attention to a skill that conveys empathy, like reflective listening, and they decide to get better at that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just to circle back a little bit, you know, people are born, I think, with a certain talent for empathy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not surprising that they would be because most talents that human beings have or or abilities that humans have are in a normal distribution in the population, right? So curiosity about other people and the ability to take the perspective of another person is probably normally distributed in a population. And most people are pretty good at it. Some people are really good at it. And some people are really not very good at it, right? I think about it as a rubber band. You're born with a certain empathy rubber band, right? It's a certain size. You get that when you're born. But because it's a rubber band, it can stretch. So you can be born with a small empathy rubber band, but you can stretch that son of a gun by having certain kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. And if you have a great big rubber band, maybe you don't need to stretch it that much and you don't need to have those particular experiences for it to be better. And it's likely that not all therapist skills overlap and are, are the same. Like if you're a person that's good at curiosity about others and you have that naturally, it doesn't necessarily follow that you're going to have acceptance or the ability to uh, have direction or things like that. Right. So there's mm-hmm. probably something to work on in there. Sure. And how you become more empathic is you either work on the internal component of having a lot of life experiences and immersing yourself in the life experiences that your clients have and knowing more about them and paying attention when people are, are speaking to you and opening your heart to that and having experiences in your own life that are deepening and help you to become more aware of the internal experiences that happen to people when they encounter difficulties in their life. Yep. Or you practice an external skill like reflective listening, which is Mm -hmm. something that you can do by listening to your own therapy tapes practicing with other people, getting feedback from other people. And it turns out that when you practice that external skill, it actually creates a different experience inside of you. So one of the ways I think you can become more empathic as a therapist is to practice reflective listening because doing that will actually expand that inner curiosity that you have if you, if you do it well. Absolutely. Yeah. And What I think is like super encouraging about all the things that you're saying is I'm really hoping that a lot of the people who will eventually listen to this are people who haven't been baked into the same old, same old yet, who haven't, you know, been trained in in the so-called traditional ways, who are still kind of finding their way, because there's all sorts of permission here. Maybe you won't agree with this, but There's all sorts of permission with this knowledge to almost be a person before you kind of top that off with therapeutic skills and training and degrees and Mm. tons of experience that many of these characteristics that make effective therapists seem to be very similar to the things and the characteristics that make a pretty good friend. With a different outcome, of course, and with a different mm. intent, but it's it's that relational aspect that seems so crucial, and that ability people like when you pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. 
when you accept them. So I don't know what you think about that. Feel free to disagree if you'd like. I don't know the answer to that question. It's kind of interesting. Like it, and it kind of leads to who should we be training, right? Who should we be selecting to train? Wow. And, and, Go on. You know, maybe having life experiences is one of the things that helps you to be a better therapist, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, all I know is when, when I started being a clinician, I was probably 25 or 26. And most of the people who I was working with were older than I. And what I love about the, the MI stuff from the beginning is, you know, you've always been clear that people are the experts in their own lives. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot from being curious with the people who I was supposedly helping. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes sense from mm-hmm. a lot of the things that, that you've been saying. So you have that internal curiosity and you're in a situation where you can naturally explore that, you know, with people and interactions with them. It sure makes sense to me that you would be perceived as a more empathic therapist by your clients. Yeah. So let me ask. I'm pretty sure we have been discussing this, but I really want to make this explicit for the people who care to learn and who are learning about this. How can I say this? When you're empathic, when you're genuine, when you're accepting all nice things, how does that help people who are trying to change? And I would add to that list. Go, yeah. So having direction, being able to have a direction and a goal-focused interaction with your client, which is, you know, very important. Empathy alone, I think, isn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. Also, being able to give <laughs> feedback and information in a particularly useful way to clients is one of the skills. And evoking from them is one of the skills. And so each of those skills, each of those therapist characteristics slash skills, right? Because they're they're both, right? They're an internal characteristic mm-hmm. plus an external skill has a different contribution or a different mechanism. And sometimes people need more of one thing than they need of another, right? So like sometimes people really are offended by a therapist that is super empathic. And what they really need is somebody who has more direction or somebody who has more genuineness, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people don't really like a genuine therapist that's all, you know, all who they are all the time during the session. And what they really need is a little more formality and a little bit more direction and a little bit more information from the person. So I would say it's not just one thing that works. It's a therapist that can shift fluidly between those characteristics and skills and probably a bunch that we don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Right. The reason we picked these ones is because that's where the data were in the literature. We're not saying that there aren't other ones or other important ones. Those are the ones we happen to have some science for. Yeah. You know, when we were talking even about having this conversation on the podcast, I think we were in this area about just like extreme following versus guiding versus, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. you know, overt directiveness. Mm-hmm. And you said something that I thought was really interesting. You correct me if I have it wrong, but you said if a person was struggling and and you knew as their clinician that this might be the only shot you get with them. Yes. You are simply not going to just compassionately accept yes that they were stuck. That you were going to kind of empty your toolbox. Yes. Did I get that half right? Half right. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. What I think is that some of the relational component and the therapist skills are really about building, putting money in the bank with your client, right? That's Mm. what we do is we engage them and we put money in the bank. And then what we have to do is we have to spend that money on something. And that's what 
effective empirically supported treatments are for. That's what we should spend our money on, right? And so we're not there to just make deposits and keep building up our balance in the bank. I don't want my therapy with the client to end with a great big balance in the bank. I want to make sure I've spent every cent of that on science-based interventions that will help that person move down the road. I want to have a bank account pretty close to empty when I'm done, because that means I've spent my engagement with that client in the service of something that I know will help them. And I'm not just relying on therapist characteristics to get the job done, to get across the finish line. And to be clear, right now, when you're talking about this idea, you're not talking about just giving advice without being asked. No, but at the same time, if you've got a mouse phobia, I want you to have exposure therapy and response prevention. I want you to have that. And I feel like if I don't use the engagement that I have with you in order to point you in the direction of what I know is an efficacious therapy, then I haven't done as good a job as I could have. Now, maybe I can't do that in one session because sometimes people, you know, are distrustful and they don't engage quickly. And it's going to take a little time to get that person mm-hmm. involved and motivated in order to be able to use that kind of a, of a technology like exposure and response prevention. But maybe if the client engages right away, I will be able to, in the first session, at least talk about those things as being an important, something that I think is important in their ability to get better. Hey, I think this is important. What do you think? Right. Mm -hmm. So as long as I understand that that's where I'm going, then I'm all right. If I take longer or if I take shorter, I might be doing that Mm -hmm. for good reasons. As long as I don't get lost and wander around and think, okay, well, the only thing I really have to do here is be empathic or be accepting or, you know, have great evoking because there may really be a role. There probably is a role for expertise in the problems that the client's bringing to me. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Can, can I throw out a couple more words in this context? Heck yeah. Persuasion. Yeah. I don't want to get into, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Cause I, I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm. But my hunch is that you're not going to be coercive. I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to lay that out. How well, does that ever work? Right. Not like, well. <laughs> it doesn't stop most of us from doing wrong, it, though. Right. Like if I could be coercive and it would to get a person to do, you know, exposure with a mouse because they have a mouse phobia, I, I might do it. But it's not going to work. Right. Therapy isn't a totalitarian regime where you can just make people do whatever you want. You have to collaborate with them. It's a bad idea, has zero usefulness to say, okay, well, I'm going to win this by coercing people. And to go back to, you know, addictions treatment, that was kind of like, in many ways, the hallmark of, I think, why a lot of that well-intended work fell flat. It was very coercive. With elements of social control, too, with people exactly. coming in. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a heretic in the field of addictions treatment because I really am opposed to coerced or legally mandated treatment for substance use disorders. I really, mm-hmm. it really worries me. And it worries mm-hmm. me for a lot of reasons. One is because I think um, the data to support coerced treatments are helpful only until the coercion ends, right? Yeah. And, and then... <laughs> And then it's a different ball game. And so is that really the best? If With all the money we spend on coercing treatment, is that really the best we can ask yeah. of ourselves? Is that, it, is that it works until we quit monitoring them and then it doesn't work anymore? Yeah. And that, but that, that's not even change. That's more like compliance. That's like doing time, you know, to get people to leave you alone. I don't think people really change. Like the, once it's over, they're not taking anything with them. Well, okay, and yeah. uh, I agree with you. And so, why why bother? Because it's very expensive for us to do that. And <laughs> you know, not to mention the the weird position it puts us in. We can become kind of an arm 
of the courts and the legal system instead of being a, a real refuge, uh, having something different to offer people. As I say, there are two sides of this, and I hear very clearly therapists who argue in favor of legal coercion and say, look, you know, it, it's a great alternative to putting people in jail. I get that. Uh, I'm just really worried that we're not actually accomplishing what we think we are. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you because then we become an extension of that system rather than a different kind of response to the problem. And I think a lot of people who are mandated, who enter treatment systems, they expect to be treated poorly. They come looking for that. And sometimes, unfortunately, we give it to them. And and I think that's the worst response. You know, you and I are about, we're about one minute from being tarred and feathered by the. Yeah. 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 I've already had that experience, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So let's move away from that because it's getting unpleasant. Okay. Fair enough. The notion of tarring and feathering. It's unpleasant because it's really, there's truth on either side of that dilemma. Right. There's truth in the statement. We shouldn't just throw people in jail. We shouldn't just punish people. We should offer them alternatives. Right. Because that model of saying, well, you know, you get a DUI and then, bam, you go to jail right away. That doesn't seem to work too well either. No. Right. So there's really not a strong win, in, in my opinion, on either side of this argument. Which is what makes it so unpleasant is because it's kind of sad, actually. And to, to come a little full circle, most of that kind of treatment, if that's even what you want to call it, has very little to do with all of these effective characteristics of effective psychotherapists, because you're not doing really any of that in most cases. You know, I would say, I'm not sure I agree. I see a lot of therapists working in treatment centers where treatments are straight up coerced, straight up mandated. The person, you know, it's like they got a jail cell on one side and they got a therapist chair on the other and they got to choose. Right. And I call that coerced treatment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they end up with a therapist that has a lot of these characteristics that we talk about and knows a little bit about what they're doing. And I think their experience is probably dramatically better than someone who I think somebody who has doesn't have those skills. And I'm going to put my money on that therapist every single time, even though their treatment is coerced. More agreement than I thought maybe at the at the very beginning. Yeah. Given what you've been learning and what we've been talking about. And what I've always liked about the the MI folks, I'll, I'll call them, is that not only were they doing the work, they were always measuring the work. Yep. And even more, I think, interesting and I think admirable is they really began to study how do you learn how to do this and how do you effectively train people? Because I just remember when I started doing MI training here in the Buffalo area, I met a lot of people who came to like a three or a six hour training, like a one day thing on MI. And that was supposed to impact their practice. And I know that you and the MI folks have some opinions about what are the best ways, not only learn MI, but to learn these effective characteristics and capacities. My question is, what do you think? are effective ways of training therapists in these skills. How do people learn this best? You've talked about this earlier, but again, I want to make this explicit. Well, and here there are a lot of data to help us out, right? Because we've we've done a lot of training studies in motivational interviewing, like this is what it takes to, to train people to do it. And the couple of things we've learned, one is that one-shot workshops typically produce, they produce gains, but they're very short-term gains. And so they last probably not even six weeks, right? Mm-hmm. I know this for a fact. You can have Bill Miller teaching a workshop, a two-day workshop, 
At the end of that workshop, people will have very substantial gains in their basic MI skills. You measure them six weeks later and those skills are, are gone. Yeah. For the majority of people. There's a minority of people who get any kind of learning. Geez, they pick up a book about MI and they read it and they're like fast learners, the easy acquirers, right? They need so little and they do so well. And, you know, those people are super interesting. I'd like to know more about who they are. It certainly wasn't me. So one-shot workshops, typically short-term gains, they don't stay. And by the way, that's true of other therapeutic methods as well. MI isn't unusual in this way. True. So the second thing that helps is getting enrichments to your training. So great, you've had some initial training, either a workshop or you've had some instruction or you've had some introduction to the method. And then following that, you actually have enrichments of your training. And what kind of enrichments are we talking about? Two that we know about in our treatment research are getting feedback. So submitting a work sample, a sample of yourself trying to do this, and then having that evaluated in an objective fashion and getting that feedback, getting those numbers, getting that evaluation of what you're doing. And we have ways of doing that in motivational interviewing, measuring what you've done and giving you that feedback. That's helpful. And what else is helpful is a consultation where you bring a client problem to a consultation with somebody, you talk about it, you practice a skill, a critical part of the consultation process, and then you make a plan for what you're going to do the next time. So those are sort of consultations. And we know that receiving either of those things increases your benefit and receiving both of them gets you the biggest gains and also the biggest impact on client behavior when we measure your work samples, right? Getting both of those. So those are some of the things that we know about how to train people in motivational interviewing. And by the way, training people in motivational interviewing follows the same rules as training people to be therapists, which is everything we think predicts how good you're going to be at MI. Turns out not to be your personality, doesn't predict it, your age, your experience, how you were trained. None of that makes any difference in how well you, you learn motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. I'll say one more thing, yeah, which is that there are some people who never seem to get better at motivational interviewing, mm-hmm. no matter how much enrichment and training they get. And so I'm convinced that there are some people that motivational interviewing is just not for them. And I'd be I'm I have lots of ideas about why that's so, but I don't know. I don't really know. And I'm so curious about that. Like what makes somebody not ever going to be good at MI? And, you know, probably the same thing is true of CBT or 12-step facilitated therapy or, you know, interpersonal therapy or any of the other, you know, empirically supported treatments we could talk about. There's a subset of people that that therapy, that's just not right for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. All right. Now let's even get a little more macro here. Okay. Talked about individual practitioners, how to train them. The last idea that I wanted to talk with you about is what are the implications of everything that we've been talking about when it comes to kind of challenging the status quo in our systems of care or in our treatment systems? Mm -hmm. Based on everything you've been talking about, how do we go about over time, clearly? transforming and building systems of care that reflect these ideas. And yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll no, stop. No, you there. first. You first. I want you to finish. I think I, I pretty much was. But how do we build systems of care and treatment systems where people who want to practice this way and who want to be effective will get support and they'll continue to learn and it will be something that is not the luck of the draw. But you, if you enter the system, you're going to get this kind of high quality standard of care. Right. And this is, by the way, the next book that we're working on now is uh-huh. like, OK, if you have these effective therapists, then what can you do to leverage their impact in systems? Right. Yeah. And I'll just tell you that the things that I'm going to be talking to you about are not my ideas there or Bill's ideas. They have been espoused by other people. We didn't make them up. 
the first one I would say is to stop making our initial contacts with clients about assessment. We have Mm -hmm. a model that we need to assess people and figure out what's wrong with them and what their psychopathology is in order to figure out what the best treatment for them is. And first of all, I'm not even sure that's true because I think a lot of the ways people change don't have a lot to do with their psychopathology, but okay, let's say it does, right? It still doesn't address the fact that we have to engage people before we can brutalize them with assessment, because that's what assessment usually is, is it's a pretty brutal experience for somebody that's already kind of tender. Um, So I would say that in an outpatient setting, we ought to devote at least the first two, maybe three sessions to engaging and motivating that client to change. Mm -hmm. A second thing that I would see is that we need to we need to get rid of the idea that therapists should do their work without being observed. I want to go back to surgeons, right? What surgeon would ever say, you know what? What happens in the operating room is magic. And if you watch me, it can't happen. Right. Yeah. We would, that would be bizarre to us. And yet we hear that from therapists all the time. If you watch it, if you evaluate it, then the magic can't happen, right? The door has to be closed. We need to get rid of that idea that we've got to close the door and we need to allow therapy to be a much more observed thing by our peers, by people who are experts, by people who can give us feedback and help us get better, by mm-hmm. our clients, you know, by, by having clients routinely and regularly give feedback about the therapy sessions. I mean, the data are very strong that that improves therapy outcomes. So that's a clear uh, change that we advocate for. And the third thing I'll talk about is even, you know, sort of even more removed from the therapist, which is we need a way of giving therapists outcome data about their clients. Treatment systems need to start paying attention to follow-up. And the fact that we don't do that is like, like if I could change one thing, it would be that we would have routine follow-up of our clients. And in the Effective Therapist book, we talk about how some some ways that therapists can make that happen for themselves. But really, we need systems that are willing to invest in that kind of absolutely routine follow-up that clients will get. And what we'll find when we do that is what many of the research, the big data research studies have shown already, which is that some therapists are more effective than others. And that's kind of threatening to us as therapists, we kind of don't want to know that. It's like <laughs> making us very nervous. Like, you know, and here you and I are sitting in academia in our ivory towers. You know, this doesn't impact us. But hey, there's therapists on the front line who are saying, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to be evaluated and accountable for that. But yep. yeah, and you know, but all I will say is that's the way surgeons used to think, but they don't think that way anymore. Right. And we need to know who are the really good therapists in our settings. And more importantly than that, who are they good with? Because the big data studies about therapists show us that therapists are usually good, better at treating some kinds of clients than others. And so Mm -hmm. it may be more nuanced than saying, okay, well, who's the best, you know, rank ordering our therapists is one thing. We can do that. But when you look at what problems are therapists good at, it's very likely some therapists are good at some problems and not so good at other problems, which allows us to sort of give people a case mix that optimizes their skills. Mm-hmm. I love the, the kind of big system focus because I have met people and students who I think got it, if you will. You know, they, they, they were good at it and they had the right intentions and they had many of these capacities that we've been talking about here for a while, but they were in a system that not only sometimes didn't value it, but literally challenged what they were doing. It spit them out. And I think that's why people need to move up in treatment settings and and into positions of leadership and influence and all that. But that can be a lonely ride when you are the one of the two people and you're fighting a battle maybe with your supervisor or your director on a daily basis about being nice to your clients and stuff that makes no sense. Yeah. And, you know, here I'll say we therapists have that in common 
with many other occupations and professions, and particularly those in the medical field, right? So I keep going back to them. Surgeons would complain of the same thing, right? They have a high, a dedication to a high level of quality in what they do, but the system often conspires against them to have the best outcomes that they could. Yeah. Right. So in that way, we could take a lesson from our, our peers in other patient care areas. Yeah. And just again, to emphasize, you know, how do you overcome that? Well, you don't often win a power struggle, but sometimes you can win a data struggle. Exactly. If you're, if you're measuring what you're doing, which, yes. as you said, most places, I mean, I, I, I hope it's different in New Mexico, but I mean, out here in Western New York, um, I'm going to get in trouble for this, too. But I, I think there are a lot of settings that literally don't measure their effectiveness on what they do at all. Well, it's tricky, right? And it's ex- and it's expensive. So. You really have to transform the way you think about care in order to be willing to do that. And I I think it's coming. I really do think that's coming because therapy is too expensive and potentially too powerful to not be doing that. Mm -hmm. But it's sure not here yet. And it's not different in New Mexico, my friend. Mm. Oh, no, that's too pessimistic of a note to end on. We we got to find something else. I'll take a shot at it. We could acknowledge what you and I just said, but I think we also have to be fair is what I think about what was going on in a lot of settings 30 years ago, 25 years ago. We've come a long, 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 long way. You can't pick up a text anymore without seeing references or chapters related to MI, to the stages of change, harm reduction and client-centered approaches. We're, we're getting there. Not only that, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. A focus on natural change and how do we mm. therapists facilitate a natural change process? Because that's the way most people change, right? Like that's a huge area of growth and optimism that we can focus on. How do we mm-hmm. get better at helping people change themselves instead of thinking that we need to make that, that we have to hold them by the hand and take them along, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that, that makes me tremendously optimistic. There's so much to learn from those folks, too. I know I, oh my I, met, gosh. I met people in my personal life who referred to themselves, for example, as recovering from an addiction. That's how they describe themselves. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, how did you do that? Did you go to AA or NA or? or? Nope. Here's what they tell you. I know exactly what they said. Are no, you ready? Yeah. They mm-hmm. said, I just made up my mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And but that, that's not supposed to happen here. I know. That's actually that's, that's the most frequent way that people change I know. an yeah. addictive behavior, right? So I'll say one other thing that should engender a sense of optimism, which yeah. is that the more we struggle as a society with the inequity and stigma and health disparities and income inequivalence and how really the social fabric of our society is really failing us right now, right? The more it becomes clear, I think not only to us therapist types, you know, who could have maybe guessed that this was going to happen, but the more it's becoming clear that when we don't invest in mental health treatments and substance use treatments, we pay a price for it socially. We're paying it, paying dearly for it, you know, now. And it's just going to get worse. And so eventually I'm optimistic because I think eventually the the lesson will become very clear. We have to invest in a mental health safety net and a substance use safety net. We have to do that because otherwise we all pay the price for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's end there. Okay. I think that's the challenge in front of us. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you have like about seven other things to do mm-hmm. rather than to do a podcast here in the in the middle part of December. Oh, my um, gosh. It's been such a pleasure. So fun. I agreed. And I am looking forward and hoping that not only do folks listen to this, but academic types, people who build syllabi and things like that, 
we'll see that, you know, you don't have to have a whole bunch of reserve articles. You can have links to a very informative podcast that can have <laughs> an, an, a nice little impact on your practice and minimally get you thinking about how you do what you do. So well, thank we would you. make a great stimulus for a discussion group, wouldn't we? I would hope. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I would hope. Thanks again, Terry. All right. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Dr. Teresa Moyers for taking the time to join us on our podcast. The Quietly Effective in Social Work podcast crew is our technology and website guru, Steve Sturman, Nick DeSmet, our GA production assistant and guest coordinator. Say hi, Nick. Hey, everybody. And me, Peter Sabot. Tell us what you think about our episodes on our website. Drop us a line and tell us how you think we're doing at insocialwork.org. See you next time, everybody.